and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Well, good morning, Bent Tree. It's good to see you guys here, and uh, man, I love worshiping with our church because what we just saw right then is you lifting your voices and your hands and, and worshiping God as as our, as our worship team leads us, they're not performing for us, they're leading us in that. But it's all of us raising the name of Jesus on high, giving him glory, ascribing honor. Amen? And we're glad you're here. If you're, you're new, my name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 5, the Gospel of John. That's a New Testament book. If you are new to the whole Bible thing, If you're able, would you stand with me, just in reverence, uh, showing reverence to God. Go ahead and stand. As we read the Word of God, I'll read it. You listen carefully, starting in John chapter 5, verse 15 through 24. The man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jesus responded to them, My father is still working, and I am working also. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him everything He is doing. And He will show Him greater works than these that you will be amazed. And just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to whom He wants. The Father, in fact, judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all people may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. This is the word of God. You may be seated. If you would, let's just prepare our heart for a time of preaching. Let's just bow our head as we enter a time of prayer. And as you do that, just get ready with a time of, is there anything you need to repent of? Just repent of that. Turn from it. For a Christian, repenting doesn't re-save you. It's just putting your relationship with God back right. Turn from those sins. Is there someone you need to forgive? Forgive them. We don't forgive because people are good enough. We forgive because Jesus commands us to. Because Jesus is good enough. Well, God, our Father in heaven, we come to you in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We couldn't come to you without that name. So God, we want to thank you for these words we're about to study that you have written through all these men so long ago, and yet these words are still just as relevant today as they have always been, even more so, God, as we see that day approaching for your return, Jesus. So we ask that you use all these words through the power of your Holy Spirit to just shape and mold us into the creation you want us to be, into the men and the women you want us to be. Show us what we don't know. Teach us, God, your ways. Correct what we think we know but we have wrong. Give us a humbleness to approach this text with a desire to grow our relationship with you into a more deep and full understanding of who you are our Savior. It is in the name of Jesus Christ. We all prayed and said, amen. Well, as we begin today, let's just kind of remind ourselves just of a few key things we need to remember 
as we study the Bible, not just this morning, but any time we study the Bible. That's what we do here at Bentry. We take verse by verse through Scripture. But when we do that, even if you're on your own, you always want to ask, who is the Scripture talking to? Who is it, who is it that's talking even? Start with that. You want to know who the original audience is, but you want to know who is addressing the audience. And we have identified three groups of people out of a very large crowd in this text that are listening to Jesus right now. We'll look at that in just a moment, but as we study scripture, as we get ready, when you are, uh, when you are by yourself, you ask yourself this question, what is the meaning of the scripture as it relates to the big crowd first. Do you get what I mean? Like ask what does any passage say to all the original recipients of that? But then ask at the very same time, what is this saying to me? What is the truth here I need to understand? Notice that I didn't say, what does this mean to me? Like what is, what is my truth here? No, 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 no. There's only truth. There can't be multiple sources of truth. There's only truth. That's indicative of truth. It's singular. Ask, what is the truth of Scripture is communicating to me from God right now? And then ask, then what do I do with this truth once I understand it? You got it? So take this large group of people, several thousand probably listening to Jesus preach. Now, who is Jesus speaking to? Well, there's this big crowd, probably the biggest, probably in the low thousands that have come to hear Jesus just because they hear, they want to go, who is this guy? We're hearing so much news about. I mean, he's healing people. He's preaching like no one has ever preached. Why is it? So they've come. Then we see Jesus' 12 disciples, but along with them, probably a few hundred people that follow Jesus from town to town. They just can't get enough of Jesus. So they're there. Then we have this very small little group of people, but powerful group. They're very wealthy, very powerful. These are the Jewish religious leaders. Remember, these guys don't just have religious power, though. Because religious and political power are bound together at that, that time. Now, they could stop you from worshiping. They could stop you from offering your sacrifice. Now, that's big in that culture, but listen, they can also close you down from just buying and selling. You can't go to the market without their approval. In other words, they have the power of essentially keeping you from earning a living even. You can't do your job without these guys. But worst of all, these religious leaders can have you killed. If you don't follow their man-made rules, now they're supposed to be enforcing God's rules, but they are also enforcing their little rules on top of this. They can have you killed. And here's how they do it. They can make it look like the crowd killed you because you broke one of their laws. And so they say, blasphemous person. And they get the crowd all riled up. And then the crowd picks up stones under their authority. They throw it at whoever the person is they want killed until they're dead. And no one would even ever second guess them. It's totally legal and legit. As we read in our passage for today, these religious leaders are, in fact, trying to incite the crowd to kill Jesus. We saw that, didn't we? By the way, the reason they crucified Jesus in the end through the Romans is they can't ever get the crowd to uh, kill Jesus. Now that we've done all that... We're prepared to study Jesus' words, so put yourself in the crowd hearing Jesus speak. Feel the tension in the air. You realize what they're wanting here. You realize they want you to pick up a stone and kill him. Narrow it down now. You can put yourself in the sandals of each of these three groups and ask, how would I take this if I were a religious leader, a commoner, or one of Jesus' own disciples? How would you take this? These religious leaders are confronting Jesus with this big crowd over his healing of a lame man who had been lame for 38 years. He says, Jesus heals him, says, pick up your mat and walk. But he did it on a, a Sabbath or what the Jews call the Shabbat. And they're upset with this. Now you might guess that Jesus would back down here if he were a normal guy because 
he would be afraid of these religious leaders. He might shrink back and, and apologize and ask for forgiveness, kind of grovel a bit, maybe get on his hands and knees and say, oh, I'm so sorry, because this is a life and death thing here. But Jesus is no ordinary man, is he? He's the son of God. He doesn't turn. He doesn't apologize. He doesn't run. He doesn't shrink back and ask for forgiveness and say, I'm, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to do that. In fact, Jesus stakes out his ground in this passage and he begins then to build this case of who he really is. Now we call that Christology or the study of Jesus. What we have been studying so far has been huge here because Jesus really begins to open up who he is as the son of God. He's taking the gloves off and he's about to start swinging here. So far... In this passage, we've seen Jesus make five declarative statements. We've only studied four of those. But if you were listening close, you saw five declarative statements about his identity. I know if you've been here a while, we've studied these. You're probably wondering, Paul, why are you reminding of these again? Because we've been in this for, right, like six weeks just on this passage. And the answer is, what we need to see Jesus doing here is He is building a foundation for us to understand him in the last part of this chapter and especially in the next part. Because if you don't understand the foundation of who he's claiming to be, you're like going to go, I don't get what he's saying. While I find what I find so interesting here is that in this passage is that these religious leaders are claiming authority over Jesus. They're like, we're in charge. You got to obey us. They are wanting the common people to rise up and kill Jesus based on their religious authority over Jesus. Their position from God. We're the leaders. We command you. But Jesus simply begins to describe his own authority. And the authority that he describes is one higher than the authority of these religious leaders. You with me? Oh, I love this. I love this. Let me remind you of the first four of this foundation that Jesus is building. We won't spend a ton of time on these first four since we've covered these in detail in the last few weeks. But write this down, especially if you haven't yet. Jesus claims to be equal to God the Father in his essence or his being. Now, this is a huge claim that Jesus begins with. It's big because what he is claiming is that the three persons of the Trinity share the exact same nature or essence and yet are different in how they relate to each other or their function, if you will. And he's saying that he is, as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity here. And second, Jesus claims to be equal with God the Father in his works. Oh, if you got to think about this for a minute, if Jesus is equal to God in his essence or being, and then in his works, what you're hearing is that God, the Father, speaks, Jesus carries out whatever God the Father says. Jesus then has the ability to do everything the Father has the ability to do. This is another huge claim, right? By the way, I just picture these religious leaders, when you get to this one, they're, they're like turning red. Steam starts coming out of their ears. But then he drops the bomb on them. Third, Jesus claims to be equal with God the Father in his power and sovereignty. Think of a king that has sovereign reign. He's got the same power as God the Father, and he has the same ability to choose, to decide These religious leaders, man, they're thinking, now you've done it, Jesus. You've gone too far. They're riling the crowd up. Fourth, we spent two weeks on this last one. Jesus claims to be equal with God the Father in his judgment. In his judgment. Jesus claims to be equal with God the Father in his judgment. Now, the last two weeks... What we did is we studied the judgment in detail. Do you remember this? Remember the first judgment that 
we looked at at week one is that only Christians will face the first judgment and it's a reward for our works here on earth. The things that we said specifically survive the fire testing. We call that first kind of judgment on Christians the judgment seat of Christ or the Bema seat is you can also say it that way. And then last week, we dove headlong into a much darker, much scarier judgment that takes place on the last day for all those who have rejected Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord. Now, we call that judgment the great white throne judgment. Don't confuse the two. Different people are being judged. The reason that this second one is so much scarier is that for those that have rejected Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior, this is not a judgment for guilt or innocence. And listen close, why would you judge? If you're standing at this second judgment, by the way, no Christians will be there. They've already been judged and in heaven. But if you're standing at this second judgment, you've already been judged guilty. Why? Because we came into this world guilty. What this second judgment is really about determines the depth of sin and therefore the depth of punishment in hell. In other words, there is no injustice that will last past this part. Every sin will be punished, either through Christ Jesus for the the believers in him or in hell for all eternity. Heavy stuff for sure. And, And Jesus is claiming He's saying, I'm the judge. I'm the judge. There's not another. I'm him. But what I want you to see is that all of this stuff, all these four lead up to the the final and fifth claim Jesus makes as he builds this foundation. And this one's a jaw dropper. It may not seem so at first, but watch this. Jesus claims to be equal with God the Father in his honor. In his honor. This is what we're going to look at today. At first, this might confuse us. Why? Well, I think it's because we're not really sure what honor is and why Jesus would want it as God the Son. So let's kind of just step back for just a moment and ask, what does just the word honor mean? Well, put your thinking cap on for just a few minutes here. We're going to think through this. First, let's just start with a basic definition. Cool? Look at this. Honor is worth ascribed as a result of esteem, fame, praise, worship, and glory. Worth ascribed as a result of esteem, fame, praise, worship, or glory. In other words, all of these ascribe worth or honor. Honor is something given or ascribed by someone else through that process. You with me? We honor people with our words, don't we? Honor is something given or ascribed by someone else through a process. You just did it in worship. You ascribed honor and glory to Jesus. Sometimes we say we magnify the name of Jesus. That's not like taking a magnifying glass and uh, 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 or a microscope and looking at a slide, you remember in sixth grade, you're looking at, that's not what it's taught. It's magnification. It's more like taking a telescope and, and pointing it at the far galaxies and bringing the greatness of God down to us. And we go, oh my goodness, I had never seen that before. Do you see how that works? We just had that time of worship and in that, When we ascribe honor to Jesus, that's what he's saying. He's worthy of that. We are declaring who he is and what he has done. Now let me see if I can give you an example of honor. A few years back for Dawson's eighth grade trip, we have gone on each of our kids, we've gone on an eighth grade trip just kind of as a reward. Hey, you finished junior high. Uh, And so we took him to Washington, D.C., and then just outside of Washington, D.C., is Arlington National Cemetery. Anybody ever been there? Raise your hand if you have. Let me see. It's just an amazing place. Thousands and thousands of crosses there, and inside that cemetery is a tomb with three bodies in it, and it's called the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. 
If you've ever been, the memorial represents these three uh, or these unidentified soldiers who died in all the American wars. In other words, they were uh, never brought home. We just didn't know who they were. Its sole point of this memorial is to ascribe honor, to remember the selfless acts these countless U.S. soldiers, unnamed, gave their lives in battle, and yet we didn't even bring them home. We don't even know their name. We just had a body. We buried them. It's a somber place, for sure. It's quiet. If there's one person there, or if there are 2,000 people, it's quiet, always. Now, what you may not know is then, when it was first built in 1922, 100 years ago this year, a few tourists began to disrespect the tomb when people weren't there. They would climb up on top of it and dance. They even broke the thing. They damaged it. They did graffiti. In 1922, people did graffiti. So five years after they built it, 1925, the U.S. Army, I I researched this deal because I was so fascinated with it. They set up an honor guard to honor and protect the tomb. Listen, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, you will find a guard walking very purposefully, holding a gun like this, walking back and forth along the tomb. Now, this is a highly trained, highly disciplined guard. All are volunteers from the 3rd U.S. Army Infantry Regiment. They all are known as the old guard. And this is very honorable just to be in the guard. It doesn't matter. This is what kind of brings a tear to my eye. It doesn't matter if no one there is there or thousands are there watching. Day and night, walking back and forth, they protect the tomb. The guards walk slowly, methodically, walk back and forth. You can actually see where they have worn the marble out with their shoes. It's very humbling. Their uniforms are in perfect order. Their guns are shiny. All the buttons, everything are shined to the top. They have a a bayonet fixed on the business end of the rifle. And if anyone tries to walk near the tomb or get beyond these little ropes that guard it, the guard stops, he points his rifle at you and yells at you to get back. Or he will shoot you or stab you. The guy's serious is what I'm saying. And what's crazy is that even if you're just talking in a normal voice like this to your friend or your family member, they will stop their walk and look at you and call you down and say, stop talking. This is an honorable place. It's scary for sure, and yet some very comforting things at the same time, especially if you've ever lost a family member or friend in combat. It's this sacred ground these guys walk because these guys guard the honor of the fallen. Now, you with me? Back and forth all night long through snowstorms, through uh, rainstorms. Man, they don't flinch when lightning strikes. Their goal is honor and not just to these three bodies of these unknown soldiers laid to rest in this tomb, but to ascribe honor to all the soldiers that lie in graves all over battlefields, all over uh, the, the world that the U.S. has fought for 246 years. We call, we can get this sense of honor there, can't we? But in biblical times, and in many countries today, honor is also compared with shame. We know what shame is, kind of, but we're losing that side. Shame, if I could just kind of put a title on this, feeling a conscious guilt for something we did or something done to us. We are shamed for it. But if you think about it, shame is like a mirror to honor. Shame is dishonor. In the Bible, honor is the primary measure of social status. It it was based on ascribed honor and, listen to this, acquired honor. Think of the difference between ascribed honor and acquired honor. In ascribed honor, you could also call that inherited honor, it was based on a person's social standing in society. 
inherited honor came from being part of a social unit, prim- primarily from your family. People who are born to rulers or like princes or princesses, or maybe your, your father was a king, you, you are due honor because you are from that family. You can see this all throughout the Bible. Like when I tell someone to read through the Bible and, and they get hung up on those parts that he begat him, he begat him, he begat. You've, you've gotten hung up there, haven't you? You know, it's these long lists. All that is doing is saying, look, this person has honor because he's related all the way through these guys. Or he has dishonor because he comes from this. Those are showing inherited honor or in some cases, dishonor or shame. In Matthew when we read human, the human descendancy of Jesus, Jesus' pedigree is right both as a, in his Jewishness. In other words, his direct link all the way back to Abraham, the first Jew, and his right to be king of the Jews because he's related to King David. Luke traces Jesus' lineage through Adam Back to God, claiming Jesus' right to be Savior of all mankind because he is himself the Son of God. So we see Jesus worthy of honor simply because of his lineage. Jesus is truly man because he is lineage, his lineage can be traced back to Adam. And he is truly God because his lineage is he is from God. At the very same time, Jesus truly God in that he is God. We saw in John 1, right? One, one, and he has always been God the Son. He has never not been God the Son from eternity past. I, I realize that smoke starts to come out of years at that point. He's never not been the Son of God. But he did become a man. The other kind of honor we call is ascribed honor. It's gained through meritorious deeds. Public performance, something that you did. Like the tomb of the unknown soldier. We honor them because they gave their life for their country, our freedom. We honor them for that, not because their father was the king. Now let's think about Jesus as he makes this huge claim to these people. He is claiming both. Jesus' Jesus' claim of honor rests on both who he is And what he has done. Write this down. It's important. Jesus' claim of honor. Rests on both who he is. And what he has done. Both of those things are critically important to understand. This is a big claim. Because Jesus at this point in time in John 5. Has not yet died and been raised to life again. Has he? But look what Jesus is saying. It's as good as if it has been done. He said, you can count on this. You can take it to the bank. Jesus is saying, look, honor belongs to me. Let's look at John 5, verse 23 and 24. Jesus says, so that all people may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my words and believes in Him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Look, has passed. He's gone past that point. He has come from the dead and is now made alive because of his belief. Now, the entire purpose of God the Father giving all of his works, his power, his judgment over to Jesus as the Son is that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. Let's think through that a moment. Think about Solomon's temple, the old temple temple in Jerusalem. You had the Holy of Holies, and inside that you had the Ark of the Covenant. Once a year, once a year, they would tie a rope onto the foot of the high priest in case he died while he was in there. They couldn't go get him. They had to drag his body out. He went in there to offer a blood sacrifice for the people and for himself. The other priest, while he was doing that, listened for bells that were sewn on the bottom of his garment 
to see if they kept ringing. That's how they knew if he was alive. The other priests and the Levites, they would worship outside. They would pray. They would honor God as the chief priests offered the sacrifice. They treated the worship of God with honor. Something very interesting you need to know is that the word honor and glory are very similar in their use in Scripture. So whenever you see the word glory, you can think of honor and vice versa. Now, I could preach a whole other message right here, and you know I can. We don't have time to go too much here to dig too deep, but we will another time. We'll dig into this more. In the secular sense of the word, the Hebrew word for glory, it means of being substantial weight, like a brick of gold. They would say, back in the day, they'd say, if a guy was real heavy, he was glorious. You could say, my pastor is glorious. But how the Bible primarily uses the word honor and glory and fame, write this down. This is fascinating. Glory, greatness, splendor, and majesty. Glory, greatness, splendor, and majesty. Now you could also write a little note there. You could write clouds and light. Every time you see Jesus ascending or descending, there's always clouds and there's always a bright light. The reason the clouds are important is that's what catches the light. Otherwise, you don't see the the beams of light, right? It's this blinding light. That's the glory there. We read all throughout Scripture that God is glorious in what we sometimes refer to as his awesomeness, his greatness. Consider the Psalms, which means Uh, This would have been set to music. All the Psalms, that big book in the middle of the Bible there, are all the lyrics to Psalms. We don't have the the notes anymore, but we have the words of who God is and what he has done. Now listen close. Here's a representation of this. See if you can see this. Psalm 24, verse 7. Lift up your heads, ye gates. Rise up, ancient doors. Then the king of glory will come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. Then the king of glory will come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of armies. He is the king of glory. Now, I wish we had this. Man, this would have been a a worship leader and a choir responding. He would have said, who is this king of glory? And a choir would sing back, he is the king of kings. He is the king of glory, mighty in battle. How about this one? Back in John chapter 1, verse 14, you see the same thing here. The word talking about Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, John says, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, we could go on and on here. Glory and honor due to God is a major theme throughout all the Bible, especially in the worship that we read about in the Psalms. You hear about it in our worship here, don't you? So then, think back to John 5, these five statements that Jesus claims to be equal with God the Father in his nature, his power, his works, works and sovereignty, judgment, and now to honor God. Him. Now this is basis, this is the basis for Jesus' claim to authority that we read in John, I'm sorry, Matthew 28, 18. Think of the Great Commission when he starts out, when he says after his resurrection, he says, look, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Let's flip back to the Old Testament for just a moment. Turn, if you would, to the book of Daniel, Old Testament book, a book of prophecy, Daniel 7. The prophet Daniel is describing a vision that God has given him of the future. Now listen carefully as he describes the honor and glory he sees. It won't be obvious right away, but this is amazing. Verse 13, he says, I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like the Son of Man was coming 
with the clouds of heaven. You see the glory there? He approached the Ancient of Days, God the Father, you see that? And was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Do you see how it's proclaiming that Jesus would come? Now this is hundreds of years before Jesus is born to the Virgin Mary. Do you see that Daniel is being given this vision of the glory of the Son of God and honor due to him as he comes before the Father. But when you take that scene that Daniel describes as Jesus appearing so glorious, Daniel is probably having a hard time even catching his breath, like it's just blowing him away. What amazes me here as we read and then we think about all the glory due Jesus is that as he stands in front of these religious leaders that are claiming authority over him and Jesus says, no, I am the son, you should bow to me. He doesn't look very glorious, does he? I mean, he appears pretty, pretty normal. Just a humble human body. There's no sign of greatness. We learn later the clothes Jesus were wearing, that's all he had. And yet he is, he's claiming this honor due him. Now, when we realize all that Jesus is claiming, we can ask, but does that take away glory from the Father? Like is Jesus asking us to encroach on the Father's turf? You get what I'm saying? The answer is no. The real thing it does, when we bring glory to Jesus, when we honor Jesus as the Son, it actually increases the Father's honor. What's really interesting here is that Jesus in John 5 is being persecuted by the Jewish religious leaders who thought they were truly worshiping God by rejecting Jesus and trying to kill him. Jesus tells his followers just before he's crucified John 16, verse 1, he says, I have told you these things to keep you from stumbling. They will ban you from the synagogues. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering service to God. They will do these things because they haven't known the Father or me. But I have told you these things so that when their time comes, you will remember I told them to you. I didn't tell you these things from the beginning because I was with you. Now, if you think about the claim of Jesus being equal with God the Father in honor and authority, this is a huge claim and demands we think long and hard about it. As Jesus makes this claim in John 5 to be equal with God the Father in deserving honor and worship, the guy is either crazy or a fool, and we should feel sorry for Jesus, Or Jesus is some kind of an evil demon and we should run from him. Or as I believe we should kneel and worship him as the king of kings. It seems to me those are the only options, isn't it? Now I've heard people say, well, Jesus wasn't even a real person. I suppose you could say that. But I mean, historians would laugh you out of the place with that. When Jesus is asked in this next chapter, John 6, verse 28, what can we do to perform the works of God, they ask. Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one who he has sent. In other words, believe me. Now check check out how we need to reason this. If Jesus really is equal with God the Father in his honor, Those who don't honor the Son are actually hating the Father. Do you see that? Jesus says this in John 15. He says, the one who hates me also hates my Father. I think that's pretty clear, don't you? If I had not done the works among them that no one else has done, they would not be guilty of sin. Now they have seen and hated me and my Father. What Jesus is saying that it's really not up to man to decide who to honor. 
God the Father or God the Son. It's either both or it's none. Every other religion on earth tries to get to God the Father by something you do. Doing enough works, feeding the homeless, giving gifts to people. I don't know, you know, paying more than you should uh, for your tithe. Every other religion. What Jesus is telling us here is that in his claim of honor is that if you deny Jesus, you deny God. In other words, you can't get to God except by Jesus. By the way, that's a common thing you'll hear people say, especially in the media here. Uh, uh, famous people, they'll say, I believe in God. I believe in some universal force, but I don't really believe in Jesus. Then baby, you don't believe in God the Father either. At least not in a way that will save you through faith. The point that the Apostle John is making here by writing all of Jesus' teaching down in this whole book is to show us who Jesus really is as the Son of God. Jesus' ability to do the works, he calls signs, that no one else can do confirms his equality with God the Father. Do you remember back in John 3 when we studied Jesus and Nicodemus? Nicodemus comes uh, to Jesus at night and he says, Hey, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher for no one else can do these kinds of signs, these works that you do unless God were with them. Write this down. I want you to get this. Christ Jesus' deity means his equality with God the Father. Christ Jesus' deity means his equality with God the Father. How do we know that? How do we know that? Isaiah 42, verse 8. God says, I am the Lord. This is my name. And I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. I want you to understand the very point that we're trying to make. I want you to understand it very clearly. By God giving all judgment over to the Son is to share in the Father's honor and glory with the Son. What that means is that it makes clear that God the Father wants the Son to be seen as equal. Do you see that? Do you see it? Jesus is God the Son, truly God and yet truly man. But because of what Jesus did, living on earth, a sinless life, being crucified, tortured, suffering, died, and then being resurrected, the Apostle Paul tells us that if we use Jesus' life as the pattern for our lives, we can bring honor to God. In other words, how How we bring glory to Jesus is in how we live our lives like Jesus. The answer to this pattern of our lives being Jesus is is our example we find in Scripture. Now let me show you something. Stay with me here. This is the Apostle Paul. We're going to work through second, I'm sorry, Philippians 2, second chapter, starting in verse 5. Now, we're going to take it verse by verse just through these next little things here. But let's take it one at a time and understand this. Philippians 2.5, Paul says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. In other words, make this your operating system of how you do life. So what is the operating system? How are you supposed to copy this? Well, Paul explains Jesus' nature before he took on the flesh of mankind, before he was born as a baby. He says in verse 6, who, Jesus, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. It's Jesus, it's saying Jesus was God the Son from eternity past. And even with that, he didn't use that as a reason to say no to the request of God the Father that Jesus go to the earth and rescue and redeem his people and bring them home. Now, don't forget, Jesus knew exactly what he was facing with leaving heaven and being confined in this little human baby and then suffering and dying on the Roman cross. Verse 7, Paul says, instead, 
He, talking about Jesus, emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, hold it right there. Don't miss this. Don't get the wrong idea. When it says he emptied himself, it does not mean he gave up his divinity. No. What he did, I think, was even harder than giving up his divinity is he became truly a man. He faced what you and I face, temptation-wise, yet without sin. The theologian and pastor, Sinclair Ferguson, I love that guy. He's got a Scottish accent, if you ever listen to him. Wonderful. Describes Jesus taking on flesh and becoming a human as more of an addition rather than subtraction. In other words... Jesus subtracted nothing from his divine nature, but rather added to his divine nature a human nature. Remember, this is the pattern that the Apostle Paul is saying we should copy. Being humble and say, God, what do you want with my life? Verse 8. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Oh, that we can learn this kind of truth. That our lives are God's lives. That our checkbook is his checkbook. That our calendar is his calendar. But notice what the result is. What God the Father does for Jesus as a result of following God's plan. Verse 9. For this reason God highly exalted him. And gave him the name that is above every name. God establishes the name of Jesus above all the other names on earth. Or, in other words, he makes Jesus as the Christ, the only name by which we can be saved. Get to the Father. Verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That means every knee. Both those willingly that bend down in worship as well as his enemies that bow down in submission from defeat to the great king. Look at verse 11. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now we could go on here, but we're almost out of time. We're going to bring in... Our kids here in just a few minutes, we have our time of baptism in just a few moments, but I want you to stay with me. I just don't want you to be scared, especially those that are scared of little kids. So Jesus is finishing this little section as he's talking to these religious leaders in John 5 by reaffirming his authority to give eternal life to whom he chooses, whom he desires. Don't, don't misunderstand Jesus knows exactly what he is saying here in verse 24 again with truly I tell you. Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment but has passed from death to life. Once again, we are called to life and receive Jesus as our Savior. And, we, and when we do, What do we see happening here? He says, we will not come under judgment, but have passed from death to life. In other words, your salvation is secure. You've passed the point of being judged. Meaning we will never again sit under Jesus as the judge for our salvation. That has already been secured at the cross. The only judgment that we will face is for our reward on how we lived our lives as believers. This is why we, this verse is so powerful in Romans 8, 1. Listen to me. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Your sins don't hold you anymore. Why? He says, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. You've been set free. Your chains are broken. Let me leave you with this. The claims of Jesus in our passage this week force us, and I mean everyone who hears them, to make a decision either for or against Jesus and his claims. Do you see that? There's no room for neutrality here. Jesus says in Luke 11, 23, he says, anyone 
who is not with me is against me. And anyone who does not gather with me scatters. The decision everyone who hears the claims of Jesus makes is based on this question. Is he the son of God? Is he the second person of the Trinity? Is is he equal in nature to God the Father who added to him humanity to his divinity in obedience to the Father? One person, two natures, Jesus Christ. He's truly God, truly man. The only one who could ever save us. But if you believe anything else other than that about Jesus, one day you will face Jesus. You will, again, as your eternal judge. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to this time of baptism, just a few moments, God, I, I think about these words that Jesus said in front of these religious leaders claiming who he was, that as the Son of God, he has authority over all. To judge the power, God, that, that he has as you just continue to pray with your head bowed and your eyes closed, I just, just want to ask you here. Is Jesus who he claims to be? Whisper it under your breath. Just say yes or no. Now listen to me. If you said yes, you can't have done that without God himself, the Spirit, waking you from spiritual death. I know that sounds crazy. But you see, what we're asking you to do now is to follow Jesus. If you believe Jesus is the Son of God, follow him. It starts with a life of repentance. To say no to the sins, the things that we want to to do with our lives and saying yes to what Jesus wants to do with our lives. It's like turning over the kingship of our life to Jesus. We call this time a conversion. It's Jesus who does the saving. The question is, will you follow Jesus with your whole heart? Give him control. Believe and be saved. Well, God, I lift up my brothers and sisters right now to you that you would call them to life in you. That you would show them what to do, God. Help them to live their life for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentryChurch.com.